Hello and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad talking about everything Farmmaker. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne and we're going to talk about something we came up with a couple of weeks ago and have been working on bullet points because we think it's an important subject to cover. And this is going to be titled something. We're not sure what the title is going to be at this point, but something like, why would you do that? And what it comes down to is a lot of times budding FileMaker or amateur FileMaker developers look to the internet to or a book or, or something to get information on, on how to do something. And just because they saw someone online do it or in a book do it, they think they have to do it. And I think you need to have reasons behind whatever you do, even if it's a common practice. So we're going to discuss some of the programming hurdles that you don't necessarily have to jump over in order to create a sophisticated FileMaker solution. Exactly. And the idea is just because you can do something doesn't mean that you have to do it. So the first one we're going to talk about is one of those big requests I get. It seems like at least a couple of times a month, somebody asks me, can we integrate with QuickBooks? And the first thing I let them know before asking many questions is it typically costs three to $5,000 to get that two-way communication going on between FileMaker and QuickBooks. It definitely can be done. Uh, I often uh, use a product from Productive Computing, which we just got done interviewing a while ago, uh, Mark La Rochelle from Productive. And they have a great product that integrates FileMaker with QuickBooks. But I've asked them, you know, People don't realize how expensive it is to integrate QuickBooks. It can be three to $5,000 on average for every job. And that's because there's a lot going on there. And, and, and additionally, they can't say it's 3000 or 4000 because everybody sets up QuickBooks a little bit differently. And so it's a little bit difficult. And that's the first pill that somebody has to swallow about QuickBooks integration is that it is fairly expensive. It's definitely very expensive, especially when you consider that QuickBooks is a two or three hundred dollar program so you're going to spend three to five thousand dollars on top of that to integrate FileMaker to QuickBooks is there another way John that's the big question is there other options and that's what I next go into with my clients to say we want QuickBooks integrations not that I won't do it and I'm sure it's the same with you you're quite willing to give the client what you want but you have to ask some questions do you really need it? Why do you why do you think you need it? And some people say, well, I've got QuickBooks, I got FileMaker, I need to integrate them. Well, there are other ways to do it. For instance, you could do a simple export and import. Do it all manually. You don't even need a script. You might even do that only once a year or once every quarter. Maybe you're just using QuickBooks for tax purposes. The point is you need to find out why the client wants to integrate the two and what can we put into FileMaker from QuickBooks that will get the job done? Well, before we get into the details, let, let's talk a little bit about why people think they need it. Every business needs either an accounting solution or an accountant to manage their books for taxes, to generally see the profit and loss, etc. But Accounting programs, and it doesn't matter whether it's an inexpensive solution like QuickBooks or a very expensive solution like Great Plains, they're just not designed to handle the minutiae of running a business. 
They're good at the big picture, but the small day-to-day stuff that a business needs to keep track of is not what they were designed to do. And if you try and push them to the limits of doing that, you will end up with a complete failure. So let's take a common example of what people might integrate. They want to move some data from FileMaker to QuickBooks in order to create invoices. Well, why not just do the invoices in FileMaker? You have more flexibility. The data is already there. Why not just do it right there? There's no reason to get QuickBooks. Sometimes it's just a knowledge factor. Folks don't know that FileMaker can do certain things. They they maybe heard from a friend or saw a software and it did a certain thing and they didn't realize it could do more than that. And it's your job to educate your client and not just give them what they want because just giving them what they want almost always never is a good solution. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you're building, as we build, business solutions, a business solution is really can be a front end to an accounting system. Now, whether it's connected directly via a plug-in and some coding, or whether it's just takes over and manages aspects of your business that the accounting program won't manage properly, inventory control, stuff like that. So if you've got the FileMaker solution as a front end and you've got your customers in and you've got your invoices in there and you've got your invoice items and you've got your inventory, FileMaker is managing all of that stuff effortlessly. Now, how much of that information do you need in QuickBooks? Well, let's say you invoice 10 customers in a week and you invoice those 10 customers for a total of $20,000 each different values if you put those all of those transactions in quickbooks you've just duplicated all of the data that you've got in filemaker and quite honestly it's more important to have that data in filemaker than it is in quickbooks all quickbooks needs to know is how much did you invoice and how much money did you get in And those numbers can very easily be posted into QuickBooks as journal entries. It's a very simple two or three or four transactions, and then you're done. Now, in a business where you have many, many different accounting codes, you can store those accounting codes in FileMaker with the products that they refer to, and then break out those journal entries into different postings for each accounting code but you're not reinventing the wheel. Now, if the accountant says, or you get audited and they say, well, how do you posted a $100,000 sale on this date and you posted $82,000 in payments. How do you substantiate that? You go back to FileMaker and you bring up those transactions and you've got the best of both worlds. I would probably even go further and say that an option is just do everything QuickBooks can do inside of FileMaker and get rid of QuickBooks. You got to look at the reason why you have QuickBooks. Sometimes it's because you have a, 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 you know, some type of tax person who only works with QuickBooks and they need that. Okay, fine. But you can get the data they want and they can import it. There's no reason why you can't just take QuickBooks completely out of the equation in, in a lot of cases. And then sometimes just Give them the data they want. Why spend so much money to integrate the two so that they've got exact, they duplicate their data? It just doesn't make sense to me. And this really applies 
to just about any software program out there. This is about QuickBooks, but it's about any software program you want to integrate into FileMaker. Make sure that what you're doing is the right move. You know, make a, a list of what are the advantages of putting everything in FileMaker and what are the advantages of keeping them separate and then compare them. And you may find out something surprising that, and I, and I convinced a lot of my clients to just go all FileMaker because then it's all self-contained. We don't have to worry about communicating back and forth. Nothing's going to break. For me, that's, it's one app to do everything. And if FileMaker wasn't a good app to do it, I wouldn't say do it with FileMaker, but if it is a good fit, might as well just get everything in FileMaker, at least move to, uh, to that in a stage two or a stage three of uh, your development. You certainly can do that, John, but there are occasions and there are times when having an accounting system is very useful. Writing checks. You don't really want to write your checks out of FileMaker. Managing payroll. You certainly don't want to be doing, trying to manage your payroll out of FileMaker. QuickBooks or any accounting software can do both of those. So I see the benefit of having an accounting system to do the stuff that FileMaker isn't designed to do, but I don't really see the benefit of the integration. I just post it as journal entries. So QuickBooks has got the information it needs for the general ledger and the profit and loss and payroll and taxes and all of that stuff and writing checks and FileMaker handles everything else. So there is there is some crossover, but spending three to five thousand dollars for an integration is ninety-five percent of the time overkill and unnecessary. My opinion. Well, that's what we're all about—is opinions, right? So let's move on to probably even a more requested feature, which is I want a calendar. Everybody comes and says, "I need a calendar. I need a calendar." And my first question is, "Well, why do you need a calendar?" Because you know, people are used to that whole motif, that calendar look and feel, the monthly, the weekly, the daily, you know, everything you can do with a calendar, the drag and the drop. But they don't always necessarily need that inside FileMaker. And you got to watch out because programming that in FileMaker is not very easy to do. It's one of the probably the most complex designs you're going to ever do in a database. So you certainly don't want to do it from scratch. At least what you don't want to do is the monthly calendar. That's the part that's hard to do. You're trying to show all the days on screen uh, in a monthly fashion. And I find out after talking to my clients, most, most of them don't really need a monthly calendar. What they usually need is a daily or a weekly view. And that's easily done in FileMaker. So that's your first step is to make sure if you're going to program it in FileMaker and make it all one-stop shopping for everything, including the calendar, then make sure that you don't overkill it and put in a monthly calendar that really isn't useful. Most people are just trying to prevent duplicate scheduling or be able to have an overview and, and possibly even produce a report uh, out of the information. You know, what's what's happening in the next three days, what's happening in the next month, and just produce a report of all the events that are scheduled. It, you really got to dive deep into what the client wants to make sure that they really don't just say, oh, you want a calendar? Okay, I'm going to give you a calendar. You, you really need to make sure that you analyze what they want and don't over-program your FileMaker solution. You know, and people really think 
of a calendar as a graphical view of the, of the dates. But you can produce a list sorted by day and by time of everything that's going on. And that list is just as easy, if not easier to work with, because in a list, you've got more space to display information than you do in a calendar. So it's a question of really, do you actually need to see it in a calendar format? I think people get it stuck in their head that they need a calendar and they need to have exactly everything that you used to a calendar doing. And so they need to have the monthly view and they've got to have that. But as, like you said, it's so easy to design a sub-summary in list view that shows you any range of dates you want. You could show it uh, by week, by a couple of days. You could even choose just a particular client. I mean, there's so many things, so much flexibility there. And when you try to do a monthly calendar in FileMaker, it really is not easy to do and it can be slow and, and it's really not the best choice. And I usually recommend... Uh, in fact, all the time recommend that we don't do a monthly calendar with FileMaker features. So if you really want a calendar, you probably should go out to one of the folks who makes one. And the, probably the two most popular uh, is Dayback from Seed Code or So Simple Calendar from Paradise Partners. And if I understand, I at least understand Seed Code. I know it. I'm not as familiar as So Simple, but I believe both of them work with web viewers. So when you put all this code in there that connects or puts a web viewer and gives you that drag and drop functionality and a monthly view and overlapping events and all kinds of cool stuff that FileMaker can't really do, and then it will communicate with FileMaker and make records out of all that information, that's pretty cool stuff. And I don't want to try to do that from scratch. So you're better off just buying this product from them and integrating it into your solution if you really decide that you need to have a calendar with the monthly view and the drag and drop and all those cool things. Exactly. Now, another choice is to exchange data with Google Calendar or iCal. You put all the data into FileMaker and then you push it out to Google or iCal and it can format it the way you want it to. And there's tons of programs out there. The one I'm familiar with, again, is from Productive Computing. But, you know, do a Google search and look for everything that's out there. But I, I've used G-Manipulator and iCalManipulator, both of them, and they work great. I mean, Productive does great products, but there are also many great plug-in manufacturers out there. So you really got to go down this list and say, do we want to program in FileMaker? Do we want to buy something off the shelf? Do we want to do integration with a, with a you know, a, a major player like Google or Apple or something like that? You know, give these choices to your client and think through which is going to work best for what they're trying to accomplish. Right. Now, one of the things that I often do when somebody says we want a calendar, I say, look, I'll go over the arguments that you and I've discussed. And I say, I think that you'll find a list view is actually going to be all you want. So why don't we start with just building you a list view? And then if you don't like it, then we can talk about moving into a full-blown calendar. But I don't think you'll need it. And it's not telling the customer what they need want to hear. It's telling them what they need to hear. And you can sit there on a screen sharing session and go through the list view and make changes right in front of their eyes to show them, oh, it doesn't have this. Well, here's how I do it. And you can give them that ability. And and then they learn and they understand, hey, maybe I can do it with just this. 
and it's a lot less expensive. It's a lot more efficient than trying to build in FileMaker or site licensing something. So yeah, I think, uh, you know, both Michael and I are really into trying to do it with just FileMaker technologies whenever possible. There are times when I integrate with other products, don't get me wrong, but if you can do it with just FileMaker, it gives that smooth transition between all the features. You're not going and popping up another window and or possibly breaking something because one of the other products changed or the plugin company went out of business. I like to have it all in FileMaker because then it's the most likely scenario where it's always going to work. Absolutely. Let's talk about web enablement, John. Yeah. I, I mean, again, one of those big things that a client comes in and says, I need to have my database web enabled. And the most common reason is they think they're going to avoid licensing. And it's possible that they could avoid licensing, but there are some disadvantages. So don't just web enable something for somebody just because they asked for it. You need to find out, just like with the calendar and with QuickBooks, what are they trying to accomplish? Why do they think web enablement? What is it, what are they, what's it going to do for them? So again, the most common reason is they're trying to avoid licensing copies of FileMaker Pro. Well, first of all, you got to understand FileMaker Pro has the best experience out of all of the ways of connecting to FileMaker data. That includes WebDirect, custom web publishing, FileMaker Go, even FileMaker Go. Yes, it's probably FileMaker Go is probably the second best, but from a Macintosh or a Windows machine using FileMaker Pro is the best way to connect to FileMaker data. You get the most capability. The development cost is less. Again, you get the full feature set. And the licenses really aren't that expensive when you consider that you don't need a license for everybody who has it on their computer. You just need a license for concurrency. So if you have 20 people, you might be able to get away with 10 licenses FileMaker will tell you when you can't get that, you know, 11th person on, that's fine. But most likely you need to look into how often are people actually going to be on the database and FileMaker server can automatically kick them off. So if they're going to go to lunch, they can kick them off after 30, 30 minutes of inactivity and then, you know, let the next person on who needs to get on. You just need to really look at it. So a lot of people don't realize you don't have to buy a license for everybody. So it might be less expensive than you thought. I mean, the licensing costs for FileMaker when you take it into conjunction with how fast you can develop a solution, which means less cost to develop the solution, how flexible FileMaker is, and how much power it has, FileMaker licensing is its a bargain. It really is. I'd have to completely agree with that. I try to steer my clients towards FileMaker license whenever it makes sense. If they're going to be all in the same office or they're all there, it's a known audience. In other words, you know who the people are, just get licenses for them. It's going to be less expensive in an all round situation and you're going to get more capability. Now, some people say, well, web direct, you can get a lot of, you know, you can get a lot of, uh, it's pretty easy to, to develop that because you do it on a FileMaker layout and it renders that layout into what, you know, what it will appear inside of a web browser. Uh, the problem with WebDirect is you still need licenses, so it doesn't avoid that original reason to avoid licensing. It's fairly easy to program, as easy as regular FileMaker Pro, 
but you have to watch out for what you can't do. You do lose capability. And it is going to be slower because there's all that rendering that goes on. And imagine what happens. All that rendering happens on the server. So rather than using the FileMaker client, FileMaker Pro, to help with all of the workings, all the rendering with WebDirect is done on the server. So if you look at the abilities or the technical specifications, there are limits to how many people you can actually have on a single solution, how many people can connect through WebDirect. So it's usually not a good option because that number is far lower than regular FileMaker Pro guests connecting to the same database. So I would avoid it and use it for known audiences, but when you don't have the option for FileMaker licenses, maybe that person just needs temporary access or something like that. There's a lot of situations where you don't need a full-blown license, but again, concurrency, don't forget about that. You can use a license and have somebody connect up without buying an extra license. They can just get into your pool, and yes, somebody will eventually, if you're using too many concurrent users, you just up your, your license a little bit, a couple of uh, of cho- uh, you know licenses will will get you over that concurrency problem. So I really recommend that you you don't use WebDirect. I I don't like the technology too much. It's too slow, but sometimes occasionally it will fit just perfectly in there. The one that I have the biggest problem with though is custom web publishing because it does avoid the licensing issue. Everything through custom web publishing, which would be, you know, using PHP or the RESTful API or, or XML, whatever you're using to go ahead and, and call for that information from FileMaker and pull it into a web browser, it doesn't, it happens very quickly. It happens in a split second. So there's, there's really no need for licensing there. You don't have to have 10 licenses available for people coming in. But the problem is it makes programming FileMaker so expensive. It's so much more expensive to web enable through custom web publishing than to drag and drop and put things and rearrange them in this beautiful FileMaker interface that that you can easily do. And, it, and so, yeah, you you don't have to pay for licensing, but you're you're making the cost and the future changes to your your database interface, which is a web browser, much more expensive. And you're going to lose capability. I mean, you're translating FileMaker into a web browser and having a web browser do all these things that you want found that, you know, are easily done by FileMaker and not necessarily easily done by the web browser. So watch out with that. Really what custom web publishing is, is for unknown audiences. That's unknown audiences, which, you know, you're putting stuff out there for people who might visit your business and they want to see a catalog or something, or they might want to sign up for a newsletter. These are people you don't know yet. If they're your employees, which is usually a lot of times what you're designing FileMaker solutions for, your best choice is to have a FileMaker interface, despite the fact that you have to pay for licensing. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Let's get on to our favorite topic, John, the data separation model. Yeah, we talked about this before uh, and had a complete uh, you know, podcast on it, and it's really worth mentioning again because a lot of people go, ooh, okay, I saw this guy online. He did the separation model or there's a big buzz about it or this or that or who knows where you found out about it. But honestly, nobody needs a separation model. It's twisting FileMaker to do something that it doesn't naturally do. 
yes, there are some cool things in FileMaker that lend themselves to separating the data from the interface, but it's really not natural for FileMaker. What is a natural setup for FileMaker is a single file with multiple tables. It makes development so much easier that way. That's the way you should develop FileMaker. And to try to get the minimal advantages you get from the separation model, along with all the disadvantages, it's really not worth it. And so just design the way that FileMaker was developed to be. You know, it's kind of, you know, if you if you twist your arm that way or you, or you try to bend backwards and you can't do it, that's because your body wasn't designed to do it. Don't do that. Do way it's working and it was designed to work. And, and the way that is, is just a single file with multiple tables. I'm not saying I don't sometimes have on big, you know, companies will have multiple FileMaker files that communicate. Yes, but really, if it's about the same solution, just put it all in one place in one file. Yeah, the only time you really would benefit from the separation model is if, for example, you've got a department that has a subset of requirements that they don't need to see and have access to all the data in your main file. Then you might create a a mobile file or a separate application for that department where they are just able to get to the information they need through that. But that's really, that's not designing it using the data separation model in the way that most people think of it. That's just, this is a practical way to solve this problem. So let's do it for that. But on a general rule of thumb basis, it's too much work. But you could also do that limited access just by using security as well and still have a single file. I mean, there's there's many ways to do things, but I don't see, I just see too many problems when you start separating a solution into two separate files when there needs no separation there. It just, it makes your life harder and you can easily do the things that it's supposed to benefit you with, which is it's supposed to make it easier to update your solution since you don't have to import data. You just change, you make a new layout or change layout and you just put the interface file in there. Sure. That will work, but hardly ever do I ever add a new layout or change a layout where I don't add a field. So you still end up having to, you know, to import the data and, with the FileMaker data migration tool that comes along with the FileMaker developer subscription, which is very inexpensive, it makes putting your data from an old version of your solution to a new version really easy. And it's a, just one line of code, and there's companies out there that have these drag-and-drop interfaces for the, the data migration tool. So everything's really easy these days to get your data from one place to the other. I don't really see the the point, especially in the last couple of years, of ever even considering using the data separation model. Yeah, it's an idea that definitely has had its day if it ever really had a day in the first place. Yep, <laughs> I couldn't agree with that more. And, and the other thing you should consider is people are always so worried about doing live development. There's not a big concern if there's a good internet connection. That means from the host and from wherever you're doing that work from. I've been doing it for 10, 15 years. I never really figured out where I started, but I've never had a corrupt database. I've never had any problems developing. It's not like I start a solution from scratch on the server, but once I've developed the, the whole thing and they come back and they say, hey, we want a different report or we want to add on one table or something like that, there's not a big deal about going onto a live database 
and doing the work there. You don't need the separation model. Just go in and do your live work right there. Especially even if you're adding a field, it's no big deal. The only thing you have to worry about when you're adding a field is that if somebody's in the database and they've locked a record, you won't be able to add a field or a table into managed database uh, or a relationship without having them exit out of that record. But that's pretty easy to do. If you have a, you know, a company contact, they can just, it'll tell you who it is and you say, hey, can you switch records so I can get out of managed database? Other than that, there are no restrictions to working on a live database. Why is that? Because it's a viable solution. People are saying, well, you shouldn't do it because it's, you got more chance to corrupt your database. Well, internet connections are so good these days, they're as good as connecting, and, and I'll probably get a flack over this, but they're as good as connecting to your local hard drive. There's just as much risk of corrupting your database on a local hard drive, working locally, as you'd work over a really good high-speed internet. It's that good these days, and I stand by that, and, and I've proven it by the, the decades of time I've spent doing live development. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. The only caveat I would add is that if it's something that's complicated and is likely to take an hour or two and I need to get into the database structure, the managed database relationship table graphs, typically when it's like that, I will tell the client that I'll pull the file, close the file down tonight after you've all gone home. I'll make those changes and then I'll put the file back up. So there's no disruption to you, but I prefer to do that without working live. But if it's just a, adding a layout or adding a script or even adding a few fields that you can do very quickly, there's no downside to it. So what it comes down to is don't go out there and think that because somebody published something about the separation model that it's the way to do things. It really, it isn't. And we're trying to get people away from programming FileMaker in strange ways. And the separation model is a strange way to program a FileMaker database. It really is. And just because you saw it online doesn't make it true. Program FileMaker the good old way, and you'll have a much easier time getting your solution done. Absolutely. So this is a topic that I feel really strongly about. I don't know how Michael feels about it, but I do not like main menus. So a main menu could have a lot of things on it, but it's basically a layout that might have some buttons on it for navigation, maybe a portal, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a dashboard to some extent. I mean, there could be all kinds of things, but the, the, the original main menu was, you know, when you started programming in FileMaker Pro 2.0 or wherever far back you go, the idea was to have all your navigation on that layout so that you went over to customers. You'd hit a button once you're done with customers to come back to the main menu, and then you could click a button to go to invoices. And then you could click another button to come back, you know, the home button to come back to the main menu, and you'd see that, you know, your rest of your navigation. And that was to avoid putting the navigation on every single layout and having to make changes to every single layout once you had a, a problem with the navigation or want to change it. That would be a lot of work. And also, it just took up a lot of screen real estate. But I still think there's no reason for a main menu, even for that reason of of trying to, you know, get that the maximum amount of, of, of screen real estate per screen and not having to make changes. I don't like it, period, because it's so much work to get to the main menu. And you're saying, well, it's only one click. You know, you click on the home button and you click where you want to go. 
Well, that's one click too many times. If I'm using the database all day long, that's so many clicks, so inefficient. So for me, my preferred method for navigation and reporting also is to use custom menus. I make my own menu and I put all the navigation there and it's available on every single layout because it's under the menus. It has keyboard commands. People can easily access it anytime they want. It really makes your life much easier and it makes the navigation much easier to program. I charge my clients less money. There's no reason to have this main menu. It's just, in my opinion, antiquated techniques. Now, I'm totally in agree with, with you about the main menu. Now, with the Nautilus solution, that is what I use for the all my development, and I'm working on a single screen using the maximum available screen space. And if I want to open another window, I just use a card window and open it and close it. And the navigation is just simply a set of buttons on the top of this one screen that just will move you from module to module, but you're never actually going anywhere other than to a different panel on that single screen. And because of that, you're always in context. You can't get, users can't get lost or confused due to window proliferation, which happens all the time. And it's a very simple way. So it gives you the best of both worlds as a main menu without having to go to all of the work to build a main menu and all the extra clicks. So let me make sure I've got this right. You, you have one layout essentially. I know there's some card windows and stuff you have to work with. Those are layouts too, but essentially one main layout with a bunch of tabs on it that are kind of really revealed only when you decide to go to a different module or a different table. And so you do all the listing of everything in that one layout. It's form view, list view for every single table. Exactly. And I'm not using tabs. I'm using sliding panels, which are to the, to the user invisible. All right. So there's a bunch of different ways to avoid using a main menu. And there are probably other ways out there, but don't just use it because you saw the last solution had a main menu on it. I just see it as a limiting, a limited choice as far as doing things in FileMaker. It's so much easier to do one of these other methods, I think. And what goes along with the main menu is the dashboard. Now, I think the dashboard is one of those catchphrases that people have heard but they're not quite sure what it is, but they need one because it's going to give them the statistics back that they want. Dashboards really are good, in my opinion, for single unmanned units that display statistics that are updated with some type of script that's running in the background that's updating it every once in a while so people can look up and see what the overall sales for that day are or something like that. So imagine a room full of people making sales calls and they want to see what they're doing if they reach their milestone for that day. What would, you know, things like that. Who knows what? You know, there's a pie chart up there that keeps updating so you can see what's going on. But to have it on a each person's machine where they can click and go to the dashboard and then it's going to update all this information that you really can get from standard FileMaker reporting is really, I think, a bad choice. Yeah, it's a buzzword that is popular, but it's not really understood properly. And people think they need it, but they don't. If you ask them why they need it, they wouldn't be able to give you a definitive answer. And if you can't, if you can't give somebody a good reason for why you want something, it's a good indication you shouldn't be doing it. So really, the solution for giving a client what they want is just giving them flexible reporting. 
that's really what they want. They want to have the ability to see data at a glance and FileMaker is really good at it. But if you try to put it all in a layout and not in a, a report layout, like try to put a whole bunch of different reports on one dashboard, you're generally going to come up with bad results. Unless again, it's one unmanned station that nobody cares about the speed and it's doing one thing is updating that, that, you know, that, that dashboard. As far as, Working with FileMaker and getting statistics, the best way is the good old-fashioned way, sub-summary reporting. It's really the only way to do that. Right. Now, of course, you do have to take into account integration with solutions like Tableau and Yellowfin, where they'll take data from your FileMaker and build the charts and the graphs that are part and parcel of what people think are dashboards. It's still a lot of extra programming to integrate the two. And that programming costs money. And if you're not getting a benefit from spending that money, why spend it? And, you know, the new product from Claris may actually change that all with connecting to other products and services like Tableau, because they're going to they're going to support that in the Claris Connect product, uh, connecting to Tableau. And I've never done it before personally, uh, but I understand that it's a little bit of work and that this Claris Connect will make it a lot less work than that. So that would be the way to maybe change our minds when we get a product that actually does most of the, the weightlifting for us. Yeah, but at the same time, just the fact that it might do it easier and quicker to do it than to as currently program you know, an API still doesn't mean that it's a good idea to do. I mean, nobody knows at this point what Claris Connect is going to cost to make those connect for those connections. Nobody knows. And so there's either you pay a cost to have the API written or you pay a cost to use something like Claris Connect. It's still a cost that the, the client, the user, has to pony up for. And again, is it really 100% necessary? Do you need it? If you don't need it, why should you pay for it? In reporting, average cost of a report is about one hour of development time. So it's not that costly to do a standard FileMaker report. So why why not go that route? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just all about trying to keep it all in-house if I can. And you get a much better result that way as far as costs, as far as not losing connectivity to that third-party solution. Uh, you know, it going out of business and all of a sudden doesn't work. I mean, if FileMaker goes out of business, yes, I get it. The whole thing goes, but that's not, that's not, that's not the same thing. I mean, that, that can happen. But if, if some of these smaller companies go out of business and I doubt Tableau will, but that can affect that connection you've made to there and, and make what you've done obsolete. If you do it all in FileMaker, it's only going to become obsolete if FileMaker goes away. Yeah. And the likelihood of that happening is pretty remote. So I remember back uh, in the good old days, and I don't know how much it's it's really necessary or, or used these days, but back in the good old days, we had a long period, probably five or six years, where everybody was pulling out these tips and tricks about how to create a progress bar. You know, one guy did it with pipes, one guy did it with global fields, one guy did it with overlapping fields. Um, there's plugins, there's this and that. There's all kinds of things that do progress bars. And I, I was along for the journey. I did a couple of techniques myself. But then when I sat down and thought about it, I'm like, why do you need a progress bar? It's really 
not necessary. It's just probably that you're doing something wrong in FileMaker at that point if you're using a progress bar. Because if you're doing something in FileMaker that takes so long, it's possibly not the right way to do it. Because I don't program that many things in FileMaker where it takes that long to do it that I could actually make use of a progress bar. I'm not saying there's not exceptions, but I think in most cases, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, you know, it's very gimmicky. And I think that that's the word that you and I would both describe. And if you've got a script that is going to take a long time, why not just open a small card window in the middle of the script in the middle of the screen that says, please wait while we continue this import. And then at the end of it, close the card window. That way you've given the customer a notification. They've got time to go off and grab a cup of coffee. And that's all you need. And you can probably put in this could take anywhere from two to five minutes based on the averages of when we've run it. Because you probably run it and know how long it's going to take, right? So just put a little message in there and go, okay. I'm going to go, get, like you said, go get a cup of coffee and I'll be back and it'll probably be done when I get back. Yeah. I mean, you can even put a put a message. You've got three minutes. Go and grab a cup of coffee or use the bathroom. Yeah, you can probably guess by how many records are in the found set if you're doing some type of looping construct. that It'll take about this long and you can calculate something and say, hey, this. Uh, but needing a progress bar to go across the screen, yeah, it's nifty. But it actually takes a little bit of work. It's It's hard to thread that code for updating the progress bar into a script. A loop is pretty easy. You can just every time it loops, you can say add a segment or something like that. But a lot of times these things aren't just one thing. It's not just a loop. It's a go here, do this, do that, do this kind of thing. And trying to thread that that code for the progress bar into that script can be difficult. So my alternative would go along you know, the lines of what you're saying, Michael, about just putting up a message. But if you really want something that's going to give movement, why not just put a web viewer with an animated GIF in there? And that animated GIF could do anything you want. There's so many out there, so many free ones, but you could even have it just blink on and off to get a sense of something is still happening. You could, if you really wanted to, just put messages also that change during certain points. You don't have to necessarily make a, a graphical progress bar go across the screen and figure out how much percentage it is you need to increase it on there. And and based on where you're at in the script, you can just say, hey, I'm at step one, I'm at step two, now I'm at step four or step five, and, and there's you know going to be 10 total steps. Yeah, but again, it's unnecessary and very gimmicky. And what's the point of paying for something you really don't need? Yeah, I think you hit it on the nose there. I mean, what's the point in having your client pay for something that they don't need? And also look at the fact, again, that you might be doing it wrong, something wrong, if it's taking that long to do something. And you really don't need a progress bar. What you need to do is look at your technique and see if there's some better way to do it. Okay, well, let's talk about building everything from scratch. Why would you do that? We have all written lots and lots of code, and a code can be a table, it can be uh, a script, it can be a layout, it can be anything that you can easily take from one solution that you've developed and copy and paste it into another solution and then just make some minor changes. So you'll never it's unlikely that you're going to need exactly the same thing over and over again but the closeness 
of using something you've developed for another solution and how quickly you can go in and implement that and then modify it is about building a solution faster for the client. And the faster you can build it, the less money it costs the client. And more importantly, the faster it's able to be deployed. So it's not a question of why would you create something from scratch when you can just copy and paste and charge the client for a small amount of integration and tweaking instead of having to pay for the whole thing? That's my theory anyway. Oh, it's my theory as well. And, and in fact, it's reality because when I start building solutions, I'm copying and pasting everything. I, I, I will maybe start with a solution like a contact manager or something that fits into the whole scheme of that person's solution, but then I'll start copying this script from here or a, or a solution I did back a while and, and you know, modify it a little bit. You know, there is a lot of coding that goes on that you start from scratch because it's unique to that solution, but a lot of the stuff you can repurpose. The one thing I would probably guard against, though, is using an off-the-shelf template. Absolutely. The problem with that is, is that you don't know all the nuts and bolts. The importance of knowing the nuts and bolts is what if something goes wrong or what if I want to tweak something? You have to learn how that person did it. And maybe you don't ever truly understand why they did it that way. Maybe they have a very good reason. Maybe they don't. But if you build your templates yourself and borrow from your own work, you really understand everything better and you're going to be much more efficient down the line. Maybe a template could get you started real quickly, but I can tell you in the long run, it's not going to benefit you. No, and I would just... Uh, on principle, they're not as good as or as easy as something that you've developed yourself. It's as simple as that. When you have built it yourself, you know without having to think how it all works. You know where to go, when to go, what to do, etc. So the the template, and I hate that word with a passion, but the starter solution that you use, if you've developed it, it truly is a starter solution for you, and you can use that over and over again and then improve it as you develop work and you copy and paste and add more stuff and, and you just eventually build a solution that is a starter solution for a lot more businesses, business scenarios than when you first designed it. I mean, there are certain things that every every solution needs. And there are exceptions, but every solution likely needs a company's table for companies you do business with. It likely needs a product table for products you sell or services. It likely needs contacts, people who work at the different companies that you deal with. Those are universal. You also would need a quoting table and quote items, invoicing table, invoicing items. So these are common almost universal requirements for every solution. And you can build a starter solution that has all of those elements in. And you just go in and you make changes to that solution for that particular client and project. And people are thinking right now, well, that's a lot of work. I got to build my own template or, or my own stuff. And yes, it is a lot of work. And it's a lot of work to learn FileMaker. But in the long run, it pays off. So if you're in the FileMaker market for the long term, develop your own template. It will develop over time, as Michael's saying. You'll have it 
version one and then you'll do some stuff in the next project oh like improve my template and add some more stuff onto it or maybe i'll copy some more scripts that i didn't do before i've changed these scripts it'll evolve over time and you'll get to know filemaker so much better that way rather than trying to borrow somebody else's work who's probably designed that template to do a variety of different things it'll just be a bunch of waste in there that you don't need it's not just that you won't know what's going on. They're going to have a bunch of stuff in there that you really don't need to use. You know, you do have to build to some degree in FileMaker and, you know, you, there's no shortcuts with it. But, you know, the really the way to make it easier for yourself is to learn the way you work, build your own templates, build your own solutions, borrow from your own work, copy and paste, you know, develop from scratch where you need to and go from there. It's really, you don't need to do everything from scratch. You don't need to build, maybe at the very beginning you do, but eventually you're going to build up this library of stuff and you don't need to go ahead and make everything designed from scratch and it'll, it'll allow you to be a much more flexible developer. And the other factor that people have to take into consideration when using somebody else's template or starter solution is that, the likelihood is that you're going to have to spend time getting into that solution, understanding how it works, and being familiar with it enough to go in and extend and modify it. And sometimes I've seen solutions that are so complex that I won't touch them under any circumstances. I'm sorry, I don't work on that. It'll cost you more for me to work on that than for me to build this thing from scratch for you. Yeah, there's some templates that will be remain unnamed that I won't touch either because they're so complicated and sometimes poorly designed that they just make our work so difficult that we're saying, hey, it's going to cost you less money to start from scratch on this project. But we've kind of gotten off on a tangent here, as we usually do. That's the whole idea behind talking around the campfire. But let's, let's rein it back in and let's talk about unstored calculations. This one's... All right. I want lots of unstored calculations, John. Please don't try and dissuade me. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I could dissuade you for sure. I've, I'll show you a couple of solutions I've seen before. <laughs> but let's define what an unstored calculation is because it's not just a calculation in managed database that says unstored next to it. It's not just a field calculation. But that's probably what most people are familiar with. So an unstored calculation is one that's based off of that references inside of it, a summary field, a global field, another unstored calculation, a related field. I think I got all of them there, but it will tell you right there if you try to make an unstored calculation that's forced unstored to be stored, it will say, hey, you can't do it because you've got one of these in there. So those are the most common right there. And unstored calculations recalculate every time the screen refreshes. If you change from one record to the next and then you go back to the previous record, it's going to recalculate again. You can do that back and forth between those two records. and It'll keep recalculating. There's no storage of the result because it's unstored. And the reason it's unstored is because it can't store the results. It's based on a related field. It's based on a global field. These are not stored values. If it's based on regular fields, yes, you can store it, but not all these types of fields we've listed, which are have no storage there. We have to make it unstored. It has to recalculate each time the record changes, each time the layout changes. When you reveal a tab or a popover or a slide control, then it will calculate those. If they're hidden, they're not going to calculate. If they're down on the bottom of the screen and you have to scroll down, they're not going to calculate. But as soon as they come on screen, 
and you can scroll up and down and keep going up and down. It'll keep recalculating if you want. It's going to do it every single time. And that's what we're worried about with people. Um, a lot of developers like to use these unstored calculations in other forms, such as conditional formatting, hide object, placeholder text, tooltips. You've got to watch out about these unstored calculations. And don't just put them in willy-nilly because they can really slow down a solution tremendously. You've got to be careful about putting these unstored calculations in there. Sometimes it seems really easy and you know to put that stuff in there and that's the easiest way to go to it, but you gotta really think about what you're doing so that you don't get yourself painted into a corner of, of, of with speed issues. You wanna make sure that you keep an eyeball on how much unstored stuff you're putting on there, how many objects you're hiding. So we're here to warn people who are budding developers that unstored calculations can be a problem. It, they they seem like they're you know in, a, in if you've got your solution in a, on your local hard drive and in not very many records it may seem to work really well but you get it on a remote server and you're connecting to it from you know from uh, you know cellular connection or something like that it may not work as fast as you intended so you got to be prepared and not go crazy with those unstored calculations. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that you you have to remember about calculations is that. They re the bigger the number of records, the more important it is to not have unstored calculations. So if you've only got a record, a file with a couple of hundred records and it's got an unstored calculation, it really doesn't matter. But when you're talking about thousands and thousands, then it really does. And that includes the use of summary fields. Global fields um, are you know, base that you can use them in, in an unstored calculation. But there are some calculations that you can also store, like to get the current date, that even though you can store it, you need to make sure it's unstored. Otherwise, it'll never change. So you've got to know when to use the unstored calculations. And you've got to be very, very careful about using putting lots of unstored calculations and or summary fields on a layout because on a large record set, they take forever to load and especially when you're accessing it remotely. Yeah, that reminds me of a client who wanted me to put totals in a list view. You know, this is a list view. I mean, for me, you've got find for or find list form. I call it FLF. It's, it's the same thing you do on when you're doing a Google search. You, f you type in some search criteria, it takes you to a hit list, and then you click on it to go to the website. Well, it's the same thing with FileMaker. You do a find, it takes you to a list view, and then you click on the one you really want, or and then go to form view. Maybe you go back to list view and go back, and you do that sometimes when you're searching through your Google hits. And they wanted me to take this normal operation in FileMaker and put some summary fields down at the bottom. They didn't need the summary fields all the time. They just wanted them every once in a while to see totals. I'm like, well, you really shouldn't put summary fields in browse mode because it can be very slow. They said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, so I did what they wanted to against my better judgment because I couldn't talk them out of it. And they were removed later. I'm like, what you need is a report that you can click on so you can look at this information when you want to. It's going to be just as easy. And it's not going to slow down your normal navigation. So you've got to be careful with these unstored calculations and these summary fields where you put them. Summary fields were never designed to be in browse mode. 
they can be put in browse mode. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it on occasion, but be careful about how many you do, where you put them, and what to do with them. It's just, it can really slow down a solution tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. And summary fields are absolutely perfect. And the best use for them is in reports where you're not looking at every individual transaction. You're just looking at a total for a set. So that's where they're really useful. And this comes back down to the next subject of reports. And most reports are generally all that's necessary. And there's a there's a caveat here. And I think this might be your caveat, John, is the longer the report, the less likely it is to be read. Because people just don't have the time or the focus to read a long report. They just want the raw information. And that's where you use summary fields. Yeah, that's definitely not my point. <laughs> so I'll, I'll read to you my points or, or discuss them uh, right now. Because I, I, what I see a lot out there is people trying to do something that they feel standard reporting doesn't do. So for instance, standard reporting I mean is sub-summary parts and summary fields. They have flexibility. You can sort them any way you want. You can find them and produce different reports based on different found sets. It's what's built into FileMaker. And it seems so uninteresting and so commonplace that, wow, we could do something better. But honestly, the flexibility you get with standard subset reporting is amazing. And it's so interesting to me and so avoided by people who are budding developers think, well, I've used Excel. I want to put this number over there and I want to put this number over there. I don't want to have to, to live with this linear representation of my data that FileMaker does. Well, because you stick with what FileMaker does, means that you get that flexibility when you start saying, hey, I want to use a relationship to add up these fields rather than use a summary field so I can put it over here and do a calculation here and do this and make it look more like Excel. That's when you get very slow reporting because it's not the way FileMaker is designed to work. You're not supposed to use aggregate functions and relationships to do reporting. They're used for adding up a portal or doing something minimal. You can't just put, you know, I had one client, I still remember the vividly, that they had converted their solution from FileMaker 6 to 7, and they had one of these types of reports that had a relationship for every number they wanted. So when they converted from FileMaker 6, which is listing the relationships in the dialog, to having the graph, it was the most unbelievable spider web you've ever seen. And they wanted me to fix it. I said, I, I, my head hurts. I can't, I can't do this. And I actually turned down the work. They were insistent that I make their current solution work as well as it did in FileMaker 6. And I said, I think you need to start from scratch. And I tried to do it and I started and I stopped. And I realized that, you know, this reporting thing that you're doing is is so non-standard and so inflexible that, I, I you know, it would be a disservice for me to change this for you, to make it work in FileMaker 7. So I, I opted out of the work because I just, I, I couldn't get my soul to do it. So I'm going to diverge and get out of FileMaker and tell you a story about a report I had to write for a startup many, many years ago that I eventually quit and walked away from. And this startup was obsessive about having the people involved write detailed, lengthy reports about everything that was going on. And these reports were just such a pain in the ass to, to write. And I was convinced that nobody ever read them. 
So one time I decided to test this theory and I had created and handed in a 25-page report. The first three pages I'd actually typed information in and the next, the rest of them I'd copied law and ipsum. So pages 4 to 25 were all Latin. Nobody ever questioned the report. Man, that is too funny. That is really too funny. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so hopefully you have more respect for FileMaker standard reporting with sub-summaries and summary fields than you did before. It's really the only way you should do reporting. You shouldn't try to use aggregate functions. Even though you've seen something cool or you come from an Excel background, don't, don't do it that way. Use FileMaker reporting. It's fast, flexible, and really easy to do. And the reports can absolutely look visually stunning and be really easy to read because reports need to be easy to read and understand. Otherwise, it's just a point waste of time doing them. Yeah, I think people are concerned about them looking different than what they're used to. So the client says, well, it doesn't look this way in Excel. And they want you to make it look like Excel when really what you need to say is, hey, I know it's going to be different, but you're going to get the same information. It's going to be much more flexible. It's your job to talk to the client and not give them non-standard reporting FileMaker. It's really something that's a hurdle that you really shouldn't go over if you can help it. If the client's insistence say, hey, you know, look, I need you to say that I've, you know, an email here that says that I've told you not to do it this way. I don't recommend it. It's going to be inflexible and have them say, okay, it's fine to do this and then do it for them. You know, at some point you can't convince every client, but I think you have to give it the try, uh, you know, and make sure that people try to use what FileMaker is best at. Right. So let's move into custom menu installation. We're not going to talk about custom menus necessarily. I mean, we are. We're not going to talk about how to create them. It's how to install them. So the reason for this is I remember when they first came out, I was talking to an engineer at FileMaker. So this is one of the sales engineers who goes out and provides technical assistance to the folks out there thinking about buying FileMaker. You know, usually the bigger companies, you know, the, the Coca-Cola's, the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, all the big companies out there. And so they would go in and give them technical information. I remember being at a training and, and us having a little conversation out there and we were talking about installation of custom menus and he was on the layout side and I was on the script side. And he was saying, well, it's best to install them via the layout. And yes, it is easier. I'll give him that. Okay. That was his first thing. It's really easy to do. You just go into layout mode and you select on there, which, menu you want to be for that particular layout. So you could choose any one you want. You could have a different menu for every single layout, or you could have the same one for every menu. But I told him, look, look what happens when you develop. If you're developing a solution and have minimized menu sets, every time you go from layout mode to browse mode, it's going to go ahead and switch back to the minimized menus. Every time you switch from one layout to another, it's going to switch that that minimum to that minimized menu. And what are you going to end up doing? Cause you're developing, you're going to go up to the custom menus and choose standard FileMaker menus. It just, it was, it's just pure craziness. That's the very reason why the default for a new layout is default custom menus. You should always leave it there. And all you have to do on open 
in an open script is say, are you full access? Is the get privilege set name equal to full access or something else? If it's full access, standard FileMaker is set as default. So you do the install, and I don't know the script step off the top of my head, but that's it's install custom menus or whatever menu set. And then there's a default option. And then the other would be else. If you're not that person, that full access person, then you're going to have a minimized set. And I usually have one set of custom menus for everybody. And I change them based on the layouts. And, and I have a whole dynamic uh, adaptive method for you know getting that menu to work with any table and any layout. So that's that's another talk, but that's the basic idea. So I'll only have one custom menu. So it's either developer or user. And that way you don't have to change the settings on the layout. You just set it once on open and that developer gets what he wants, that user gets what you want them to get, and we're all happy. And I just see so many people making that mistake of going the easy route because you can see it there. Oh yeah, layout right there. There's the custom menu. I'll just set it to what I want it to be. When really what you want to do is look a little deeper into FileMaker and use a script to actually update that. And if you do have more than one lay or one uh, custom menu in there, then of course, by all means, you can still set it with scripts. You just have to do it when you're entering that layout. Maybe it's a script trigger. Maybe it's a button that triggers it. Who knows what? But I do go for the ease of use by trying to have one custom menu. And then it makes that scripting on open so brainless, so so easy, such an easy decision that, you know, the layout choice becomes really a crazy and outlandish way to set up your custom menus. It's a very good point. And a lot of people don't uh, even think about that. Or even know that you can do it by scripts. Yeah. Let's talk about backups. How often do you do backups when you're developing a solution? I have a, I have a, two scripts that are installed in every single solution I have. One is to set the backup. And what I do is I save a copy of the file to my Dropbox folder into a folder there called Projects. And then I've got a non-timer script that runs that backup script every 20 minutes. So every 20 minutes, I've got a fresh, safe, clean copy of my file in my Dropbox, which is God knows where. Now, if FileMaker ever crashes, under no circumstances will I ever use the file that just crashed. I throw it away. I go to the pull down the last backup from Dropbox. And if necessary, I redo 20 minutes of work. But I will not ever run the risk of delivering or working on a file that may have damage that I am not aware of or cannot control. Simple as that. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Although I don't know that uh, I would do it every 20 minutes, but you know, everybody's got to feel their comfort zone. And I would say at least several times at the very minimum, if you're working all day on a project, at least every couple of hours, I would say, if not every hour on the hour. And certainly having a script that takes your file and puts it somewhere other than your local hard drive because your hard drive could die and then all your backups are gone. So you could have a secondary hard drive or you could have a Dropbox or who knows what. But the importance here is remembering that corruption can be introduced very easily. Well, I shouldn't say very easily. I haven't had that many corrupt files. So that's probably the wrong thing to say, but it, it can be introduced 
and is introduced usually when you crash, when there's a partially written piece of information. You crash right in the middle of it, FileMaker can't write it, and it introduces some corruption, but you may not actually know it's there. I mean, seriously, you may find it two years down the line. So doing that extra 20 minutes of work of work, or every two hours, a couple hours worth of work or something like that, or, or maybe you make the backup after each major milestone, you know, maybe that happens once hour or, or tomorrow it's every two hours or something, you know, get some backups there because you don't want to work with a crash solution. It's really a bad idea to do that. And the problem is that not only do you not want to do it, but if you end up working with a solution that has crashed and been damaged at some point that solution will say i've had enough i've crashed too many times i'm now damaged beyond relief and i give up and at that point you as a client or a user there's no way back you can't get into that file to get your data out so you are really playing Russian roulette with your business if you use damaged files. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, is that, you know, you may never use one of those backups for 10 years. You're thinking, oh, I did a lot of work making all those backups, right? But the time that it comes into play, that one time, is going to be worth all that effort because you won't lose, let's say, a thousand hours worth of programming. You just don't want that to happen. It's really going to be a hardship on you. So getting a system for making backups, getting your normal routine will really save you a lot of headaches. Right. Something we find out that that most budding developers don't do. They just rely on their, you know, their one copy of it. You shouldn't do that. And the other thing is that if let's say if you're using FileMaker server, FileMaker Server can do scheduled backups, and they can back up to series of folders. And I'm not really familiar with this, but I think you can also back it up to a remote device, John, or Dropbox. Can you do that? Um, no, that's really generally not a good idea because it's too slow. Okay. But so you've got your backups on your local hard drive. What happens if you go home and somebody breaks in and steals the computer or the building burns down, what do you do? You've just lost everything. So if you are taking backups locally, make a point of, on a daily basis, either backing that, taking that stuff that you've backed up, putting it on a thumb drive and taking that thumb drive home with you so that if you come in in the morning and your building has gone, you've at least got all the key business data with you, not stuck where it is likely to be where it is vulnerable yeah i you know the thing is that uh what you can do with with filemaker server is you can back up to a hard drive and then have some remote software non filemaker server backup back up the backups that is a good solution you don't have to necessarily put it on a thumb drive so my minimum recommendation for filemaker server would be two hard drives one for the databases one for the backups and then once the backups are made, you're not going to want to back up, you know, the live databases with, you know, third-party software. But once the backups are made, the third-party software can come into that other hard drive and then take it remotely so you have that copy. So it's really the same idea as doing copies of a completed solution with data as doing it during development. You really want to avoid 
any problems with your data. And most of the time, you're not going to need to use a backup. But when you need to use it, you'll be sure glad you did it. Absolutely. So when you work on a solution, Michael, how clean do you keep it as you're going? I keep it extremely clean. I make a huge effort to organize and structure the relationship graph so that it's very, very tidy and I can go into it. I color code the different tables. I'm looking for a customer table. They're always red. Products tables are always green. So I can visually see the colors of the different elements. I can look at the graph and not try and figure out, oh my God, where am I going? Where is this relationship going? So I make it very organized. And it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of discipline. And I didn't do it initially, but I do it religiously now. And it is absolutely, in my opinion, worth the time that it takes to do that. Keeps your mind clear, right? Yeah, absolutely. When you look at something pretty and you can find everything easily, it helps. I think there's two levels of clean as you go. I think the big problem we're pointing out here is that a lot of developers, because I adopt a lot of these databases, don't clean as they go. But there are several levels of clean as you go. And and you're, it sounds like, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but you like to do at every point, make everything perfect. I, on the other hand, will definitely get rid of fields that I don't need, that I thought I might need, but then I decide. So I get rid of them rather than trying to figure out six months down the line. What would I, why is this here? You know, scripts, same thing, layouts, all those. But in the relationship graph, I tend to leave it a slightly messy, not, not ugly, not, you know, everything crossing over, but I wait until the end until I'm at a firm, okay, we've finished production here. And then I'll go through and color code it. And I don't think you have to keep up with everything in my opinion, but I think the key things are, is that if you don't need a relationship, definitely get rid of it. If you don't need a table, definitely get rid of it. Layout, fields, scripts, get rid of them. Just delete them or at least put asterisks at the end so you know to delete them or something like that so you can delete them at a later time because maybe you think you're going to possibly need them later. You know, often I'll color code a table occurrence. I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm going to need this later. I'll color code it. But the key here is to not let it get out of control. If you let it get out of control, you're never going to be able to clean it up. Really, seriously, it's going to take you so much work. So you have to have some level of control, some level of neatness over your file so that when you look at it, you go, everything has a purpose. Right. Now, I'm not constantly organizing the reorganizing the relationship graph because quickly, a lot of the time I'm just going in and making a few changes, adding a table occurrence, adding a table, relationships, all of that stuff. And I'll put it more or less in the right position, but I won't worry about it. But then at the end of that day or when I feel like I just need a break and do something that's let my brain work on something else while I'm doing this fairly routine mundane stuff, I do go in and tidy it up. So I never leave it more than a day before going in and cleaning up the relationship graph. It's just the way I work. It's just the way I'm comfortable doing. It's like doing backups every 20 minutes. Yeah, maybe it's too often. I don't want to have to redo two hours of work. I don't mind redoing 20 minutes, but two hours, that would irritate me. Absolutely. And and this makes me think of a client that, 
has such, I, I do a, a thing called meta consulting where I, I program you over hurdles and you get to watch over screen sharing and see how I'm doing it. And so that you can continue to program the solution you, you, you're using, but I've helped you with this difficult problem. And then you also understand because you can sit there and ask questions. But I keep thinking of this one gentleman uh, who really doesn't listen to my advice very often. I wish he did. And he, I, I say, well, what's that field for? I don't know. And, I, and, and I'll go ahead and do a DDR and I'll figure out it's not connected to anything. Or I'm like, well, why is that layout so messy and, and this and that? And, and, you know, he, it makes it very, very difficult to work on the file, not only for me, but for him, he will honestly tell you, he's a, he's a really good guy. I, lo- I like him a lot. And he, he's, he's just, you know, some people have messy rooms. Some people don't. He's a messy room kind of guy. I'm not a messy room kind of guy. I, I, you know, I'll have some clutter from time to time, but most of the time everything's functional and ready to go. And I highly recommend you do that for yourself. So when you come back and look at that solution six months later, it's not a big junk pile. And also for anybody who might adopt that solution, it's really just the way to do things. Keep it nice and neat, or at least at the very least at the very end of the project, clean it up and, and color code things and do stuff like that. Okay, so here's some advice for people who try to write scripts or calculations all at once. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's say you have this script that has to do, you know, every letter in the alphabet. It's a really long script. Some people literally try to write the whole script or the whole calculation and then test it. I'm here to tell you that when you're writing scripts, write each little piece, almost like you're doing modular scripting. You don't have to do modular scripting, but think of it when you're writing it. You do the first piece. Okay, let me run it and see what it does. Do what I thought. Like, for instance, I might have a go to relay record. So first thing I'm going to do is make sure the go to relay record finds the records that I was expecting it to find. And then I'll move on with the rest of the script and maybe add, you know, I might add one line. I might add 20 lines. It all depends on what's a, a succinct piece of code for me in that particular script. And that makes my life so much easier rather than trying to go back and go, oh, well, it's not working. Okay, let me turn the script debugger on. Let me go ahead and find where it fails. Oh, it's back here. But I, that was an hour ago. I'm not sure what I was trying to do here. I forget. It gets, it gets for, for me at least, and everybody's different how they code. For me, it's just better to program in pieces. And then, you know, and then, and then once you've got each piece working, they'll all work together usually at that point. It's a very valid methodology because it's very easy to get a complicated piece of scripting or a calculation. And it's so complicated that when it doesn't work, it will take you considerably longer to go back in and fix it than it would just by testing each individual stage as you're doing it. And then you know that, oh, well, I've tested the first 35 lines of this and it's perfect. I don't have to worry about debugging those 35 lines. I just have to worry about debugging the next five. Now, as far as calculations go, I like to program from the inside out. Because often there's a lot of nesting that goes on with calculations. So you'll have, you know, this function will get a result and pass it to this function. And so it's from the inside out. It's constantly passing stuff. Like a lot of this text parsing stuff, you'll have that. You know, you get the position and pass it to the left function or the middle function. Maybe there's also a, a length function in there. A lot of that stuff can go on. And it's best to start off from the middle and say, get the position. 
okay, did I get the position I thought I was going to get? Okay, good. That piece is working. Now I can add the middle function and whatever else I need to the outside of it. And it should be much easier to get it working. In fact, the let function really makes programming calculations in pieces really easy. So does the data viewer because you can try things out. So use all those tools at your disposal to write your calculations in pieces and from the inside out. So, you know, get a piece working, put it into the let function and then work on the next piece and then put that into the let function, another variable in let, and keep going on like that and try things out in the data viewer. If you need to, you know, you can write this whole thing with the let function and everything in the data viewer and walk through the data, make sure it's giving you the results on different types of data. I mean, it's really the way to do things. Then you copy and paste that into a script rather than writing, running that script every time. Did it work this time? Oh, no, let me try it again. Let me try and make some tell, run the script again. I mean, there might be a hundred other things the script does. So use that data viewer, use that inside out programming method to get the results faster. It really honestly is going to be much faster because you're going to do it methodically and get to where you want to go. Maybe you're more like the tortoise than the hare. That's okay. But you're going to get there ahead of him because you've done it methodically. Right. Okay, so our next topic is repeating fields. I love repeating fields, John. I use them all the time. Sometimes I love repeating fields. <laughs> and so they're basically legacy feature, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the most part, they were there in FileMaker before it was relational, before FileMaker 3.0. They were there to allow you to put or to create a flat solution, but make it appear like it was relational. So in other words, you have repeating fields for, let's say you had an invoicing solution. You'd have a repeating field for the quantity, for the product name, for the price, all those things that will allow you to get what you can get today with a portal and another table. So that's often why people use repeating fields. Now they're still there because they don't want to break old solutions. I mean, literally, people still have FileMaker Pro 2.0 solutions running in FileMaker 18. They've made no changes. I see them all the time. Are repeating fields useful? Yes. But you got to make sure that you're not trying to store data in them. That's usually a bad choice because that means you may need to do reporting on it. And then you're going to have to split the repeating fields in order to do any kind of reporting on. That's not a good idea. So if you're not going to search on them or report on them. You're just using them for an interface trick or something like that. Great. Use them. Otherwise, get them out of your vocabulary. Don't use them. I've seen too many people design new solutions with repeating fields. And as a budding developer, you want to make sure that you don't fall into the trap and, and, and not understand that repeating fields can cause a lot of harm to your database as far as preventing you from doing things like reporting, which is Reporting is really the reason why people got into a database is they wanted to do reports. That's the main reason. If you ask 100 people, 99% of them are going to say, yes, I want to do reporting. Right. So let's just quickly, a couple of points. What is a repeating field? It's a list of carriage return values. That's all it is. So if you have 10 repetitions, each with a value in it, you've got 10 values, each separated by carriage return. Repeating fields should now always be a set of records in a related table. I can't think of any example when you really, if you're going to do work on those fields and be able to need to sort them or group them or summarize them, you need to have them as separate records. 
Now, if you've got a legacy solution, you can take those fields in that, in that repeating field or those repeating fields, create another table with just those repeating fields and a primary key or a foreign key linked to where it goes and import your values from your repeating fields into the new table, splitting them into separate records. Now you've just taken a legacy and converted it into a correct way of using that data without having to rekey all the data. So that's a good trick. Incredibly easy. And it's so easy to do. It's it's unbelievably easy. And people always wonder on that import dialogue when it asks you that question, do you want to split repeating fields? Probably never understood what it was. Well, it has to do with the fact that a lot of people want to move their flat database into relational terms and it makes it so, so easy to do. I can convert a flat table into a relational structure in a few minutes. And most of that's just creating the fields in the new table and stuff like that. The import happens in, in seconds and all of a sudden the information displays exactly as it did before, but it's in a relational scheme. Now, since we're talking about this and, and we like to go on tangents here, I wanna talk about my whole marble analogy. Because people don't understand, and I think you hit on some good points there, Michael, about repeating fields, they're, they're not able to be separated very easily. What's important is to put things in records, because that's what a database does. A database is all about records. That is the grain of sand in FileMaker. Sure, you can make sandcastles out of a bunch of records, right? but you can also just show one piece of sand if you want. And that's what you want to get. You don't want to get the, you know, you want to get that right size grain of sand too. You don't want it to be too granular. You don't want to make too many records, but it's hard to do that. And so here's an analogy I think that will help you is pretend that you have a, a bag of marbles and you take them out and put them on the table and you want to sort them by size, big, medium, small, extra small, whatever size you want it, whatever characteristics, maybe next time we want to organize them there by color or maybe by cost, or maybe by manufacturer. Any characteristic that you can assign to a record will allow you to organize it. And when you put stuff into a repeating field, it's stored all on one record and very difficult to pull apart. So you can't do anything ad hoc. You can't do any kind of reporting ad hoc. You have to first split those repeating fields. So it's better off not using the repeating fields. So our whole point here about this particular topic is don't use repeating fields unless it's not for storing data, it's not for reporting, things like that, then you should be okay. If it's a interface trick, you're good. Just keep thinking about that bag of marbles and how you should structure your uh, your databases and, and the granularity you need with those records so you can reorganize them. Yeah, it's all about optimizing the way that the solution works. And repeating fields, as you said, is a very old, old technique. It had its day, it had its time, but that time is no longer necessary. It's time to get rid of it, right? I, I mean, I yeah, can't believe people absolutely. still actually use them today. It's not as common, but yeah, you don't fall into that trap. So this final topic here about what you shouldn't do or don't do it just because you saw it online, is this thing I like to call a one-trick pony. And I wrote an article about it on my blog. And I'd like to talk about it a lot. And so I think it's important to mention here is that a lot of people come into the FileMaker market, they're new. 
they want to use FileMaker, they got a job or something, and they don't really learn FileMaker. Instead, what they do is they go, oh, I know SQL, let me use Execute SQL for everything. Or, oh, I know HTML and CSS and all those acronyms really well. Let me use a web viewer to do everything. Well, FileMaker is very deep and you can get yourself in trouble by trying to rely just on some of these technologies. So make sure you try to learn something new every day. That's the one thing I leave you with is don't, don't think that you know everything about FileMaker or you don't need to know everything about FileMaker because you do. You really need to have that depth of knowledge to really program it correctly to get an efficient solution for your clients. Well, the truth of the matter is I've been developing FileMaker almost nonstop since 1987, and it's now 2019. So I'm in my 33rd year, and there is not a week goes by that I don't learn something new about FileMaker. There's barely a day goes by that I don't learn some new methodology or some technique or see something that starts my brain thinking and going, I wonder if, I wonder if. So, and it's an incredibly deep program. It's an incredibly powerful tool. And when you have the depth of knowledge that you and I have, John, because we've been working it for so many decades. We can do so much more in FileMaker because we know what it can do. And the the shame is that people who are coming into it don't have the time or the inclination to really dive deep into what FileMaker can do as an in its own right without having to resort to other technologies. Now, the other technologies are amazing and there are uses for them, but FileMaker is so much more than most people realize. And if there's one thing that our listeners, we hope our listeners will get is that make the effort to learn it. It's an amazing program. Yeah, and we're not saying don't use Execute SQL or web viewers or JSON or whatever technologies out there, just use them for what they were designed to do. Use them appropriately. Don't use them to cover up the fact that you don't have knowledge about certain areas of FileMaker. Don't make them substitute. I've seen people use Execute SQL to substitute for a portal. And that's just just so wrong. I mean, a portal's so easy to set up and it's got so much more functionality than a static list. You know, use it for what it's what it's worth. And you should have this you know, I'll leave you with this. I always talk about the tool belt. You should have your FileMaker tool belt and all these tools on there that do different things well. You can't build a house with just a hammer and a screwdriver. You need other tools. And sometimes you use a tool a lot. Sometimes you don't use as much, but get those tools on your belt and earn those FileMaker stripes. You know, get that knowledge so you can put that tool on your belt and use it when it's needed. Well, this has been a a fairly lengthy conversation. I wasn't expecting to take the time that it has, but I think it's been a very interesting one. And I think it'll be invaluable for people who are starting out and who haven't been doing it for very long in order to not get overwhelmed and overexcited about stuff that really you shouldn't wasting your time with. Learn stuff, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. Keep saying that, but it's really important. Yeah, it's, there's a saying for a reason, right? Because it, it it packs a lot of punch into one little saying that you can read into a lot. And, and I think you summed it up very well. It's like, these are the things you shouldn't do, or at least 
should consider whether you should do them or not and probably most likely shouldn't. I know that probably was a tongue twister and didn't make as much sense as I thought it when I thought it, but, but you get my point is that, you know, you really just, just really think about what you're doing. That's really what we're asking you to do and, and, you know, make sure that you're making the right decisions. And the, the final thing I will like to end with is a lot of people, and I hear this all the time, oh, it can't be done in FileMaker. And those who say that it can't be done, in my opinion, usually don't want to do it. And I'll leave you with that thought. Yeah, that's that's a good thought. I I, I won't even try to, to one-up it at this point. So we'll, we'll just say thanks for listening. And please put your comments about this podcast or or ideas for podcasts or anything you want to say. Just we're, we're glad to hear what you guys say. Just write us an email. Absolutely. Info at farsidefilemaker.com is the email address. And you can follow us on podcasts. You can follow us on, sorry, iTunes, podcasts, Podbean, anywhere you like. But we love to hear from you. We love that we're reaching lots of people and we're excited about that. And I'm Michael Rashad, and it's been fun talking to you and John. And thanks for listening. And my name is John Mark Osborne. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye bye. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.